is difficult. The language of Rav Kook is so beautiful and very difficult. I'm working here without Nakudos and as no no and as a um, and as someone who wasn't born in Eretz Yisrael. And even for people who were born in Eretz Yisrael, it's sometimes a little bit challenging. Rav Kook's words. Um, Perak Gimel, continuing, and really, actually, this is the last Perak of this larger work that Rav Kook wrote that's called the Igeris HaTshuva, the Tshuva letter. It just consists of three chapters, that's it. Everything that comes after this chapter was put together, was compiled by either his Talmidim or his son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda, taken from notebooks. Generally, we assume that most of these things were taken, and we don't have to assume anymore, we know most of these writings were taken from something which is now you can buy as a separate set or two sets called the Shmona Kvatsim, the eight journals. Rav Kook was a Ma'ayan Hamit Gaber. He was a, a flowing stream. And so when he would write, he had notebooks. He had eight different notebooks that, he, that were found kind of like in a stack um, or that he had compiled. Big, big notebooks, not like the thin ones. And he just, no crossouts, just, you know, just streams of, of light coming out of his pen. Streams of Or, Orota, Torah, Orosa Tshuva, Orosa Kodesh, Orosa. All of these books, more or less, were taken apart by, I think we mentioned this maybe once before, by the, by the Nazibar of David Kohn, his primary student. After spending about 12 years by Rav Kook, the Nazir at some point approached Rav Kook. It was in El, around El time. It was 12 years since he had met him in Switzerland when Rav Kook was there during World War One, And uh, after being with Rav Kook for 12 years, he said, Kedusha Yeshkan, certainly there's holiness in, your, in, your, in this base medrash and in what you're doing and what you're bringing, but is there Seder? Is there like any order? Like is there, is there, a, is there some sort of, yeah, is there, is there like a, is there a way? Is there a, a path here for people to take? And Rav Kook assured him that there was. And just on that assurance alone, the Nazir set out to find the order within Rav Kook's, uh, and that's why we have all these farms, because he basically went through and found all the places where Rav Kook spoke about tshuva, and he organized them based on chapter and based on different, you know, put them into different places and tried to put them in some sort of order. And the same thing with Orsa Torah and the same thing with Orsa Kodesh, and all of what we have from Rav Kook very much like in the same way that all that we have from the Arizal, we have because of Rav Chaim Vital. And all that we have from Rabbi Nachman, we have because of Rav Nassan. I don't want to say all, but most of what we have from Rav Kook is because of essentially, you know, I'm not a historian, but it's essentially because of Rav David Cohen, the Nazir, Rav Tzvi Yehuda, his son, and Rav Yaakov Moshe Charlap. Those three are kind of like uh, largely responsible for everything that we have. So in the same way that the first two, this is a very long Rav Kook-like sentence, I didn't put a period yet, it's like, where's the end of the sentence? Show me where the end of the sentence is. So I'm following in our Rebbe's footsteps. The first, second, and third chapters are a standalone work that Rav Kook actually wrote himself. And we actually, in the beginning of this series, we read the letter that he wrote to Rav uh, Yaakov Moshe Chalap, where he was uh, talking about how excited he was that he was putting together this thing called the Iger Sachuva. And... Um, it kind of represents, and that's why they put it here, it kind of represents the introduction to Oros HaTshuva. It's almost like, here are the general themes of Oros HaTshuva. And so just to quickly, quickly review, the first chapter talks about three different places one can feel tshuva. Sometimes tshuva is felt in the body, it's felt viscerally. Something is wrong, something is off. I'm overheated, I feel uncomfortable, emotionally stressed. And, or sometimes the body itself, right? Shuva gufanis. Sometimes the body itself is like, I'm not sleeping enough. I'm not eating right. And that is the first locus of chuva is in the body. Then there's a second locale of chuva that is really chuva amunis. That's something that is located in books, in svarim. And in those svarim, we begin to learn in the Rambam's Hilchus Chuva and in the Shari Chuva of Rabbeinu Yonah and in the Meiri's writings on chuva. And in uh, all the different works of tshuva that have been written and, and Rosh Shneur Zalman of Liadi's uh, Igeris HaTshuva that's in the back of the Sefer Tanya, all whatever camp, whatever, all the different things, and Rav Yisrael Salanter's students, Koch Ve'or, you know, all these books of tshuva, um, and the Nevi'im primarily, are sending us this idea that no matter what the world looks like, we are trending upwards. 
even if in a revealed sense it seems like there's a downward spiral from time to time, ma'amin, that basof, we're going in the right direction. And even if we take a temporary plummet, it's only to really wake us up to something so that we can bounce back up. And that we should fundamentally believe that as the Ramban writes, and as I think we mentioned a long time ago, we'll just spend five minutes here on a little bit of review we didn't have last week, that uh, some people explain that the reason the Rambam doesn't incorporate the mitzvah of tshuva as one of the mitzvos is because mitzvah of tshuva is not really a commandment as much as a havtacha. Right? In, in Lamdus, if you look in, in the Achronim who are writing on the Rambam, the Rambam doesn't list tshuva as a mitzvah. And one of the reasons for that is that mitzvos, generally speaking, in the Rambam's Sefer Hashroshim, where he outlines what is considered a mitzvah, what's not considered a mitzvah. So for example, collecting the mon every single day was not one of the 613 mitzvos. Why? Because it was for a temporary, it was for a time period that was like a limited in time and space. And so even though that was a commandment from God through Moshe Rabbeinu, just like, let's say, uh, Lulav and Esrog, it was for a time. But at the end of time, and this is what uh, many people point out, Rav Noach Olbaum, and I say from Minchaschein on the Rambam, and his Hilchus Tshuva, he points out from a number of people that since there is a guarantee of Tshuva at the end of days, before Mashiach comes, and that's going to bring... So since there is a guarantee of Tshuva, the Nevi'im guarantee that we're going to do Tshuva, so therefore, because there's a built-in mechanism that if we don't do it ourselves, Hashem is going to make it happen, it can't fit snugly into the category of one of the 613 mitzvahs because there's a havtacha, that's there, that's tshuva emunis, that we believe in tshuva and it kind of pulls us upward. And then there's the third, which is tshuva sichlis, which is a combination of the two, and we spent a lot of time on that, and we're not going to go into that right now because that's a little bit complicated to describe. That's chapter one. Chapter two went into the, not where do we feel tshuva from, is it something that's coming from our gut, or is it something that's coming from Svarim, or is it coming from some combination of the two of them? The second tshuva is something that's called, the second uh, chapter is about temporally how does tshuva take place. Is tshuva something that happens instantaneously? It's like all of a sudden this waking up from a terrible nightmare of, I all of a sudden recognize that my life has been completely off course, and in a single instance of meeting a certain person or having a certain uh, experience, uh, if with tshuva gufanis, you know, getting that, uh, that report that my cholesterol is so high that I need to change my eating habits and then boom, on the spot, I stop instantly eating all that garbage that I was eating before. Or, or, or you know, like I told that story about uh, seeing the, the lung x-ray and never smoking a cigarette or having a child and saying, oh my gosh, my whole life is, how am I going to teach this child? And in a moment, there's just a complete turnaround. Versus, and, and we spoke about the challenges and the benefits of that, versus the more gradual, consistent, day in, day out tshuva, which is a long time to process and slowly stripping away the layers and exfoliating the soul, you know, little by little. And, um, and that's called tshuva hadragit, like, a, like madregot, like climbing a ladder slowly but surely. And the truth is we use both of those as well. In the third chapter, the third and final chapter of the Igeris HaTshuva, Rav Kook now speaks to us about tshuva pratis, specific tshuva, and tshuva klalis. Meaning if the first chapter is where do I feel chait and therefore respond with tshuva, or how do I come to a state of tshuva, and the second one is how quickly or how slowly do I, do I incorporate this into my life, the third chapter is about identifying specific problems in my life versus just an overall feeling that something is off. It's not about where I'm feeling it, but it's, I'm pretty good. Like I can't locate a specific thing that I'm doing wrong. I'm like definitely checking all the boxes and like I'm doing kind of everything, but there's this feeling of tshuva stamit klalit, tshuva stamis klalis, which means it's just like, it's what the, what the, again, we'll get to it next week. We're not going to get to it this week, I don't think. But, but it's what the Piazetz Nerebi described. Maybe we'll read that next week. But the Piazetz Nerebi described on his 40th birthday when he describes how if I look at my life and I see how I'm using my time, so I see that I use my time well. And if I look at the low is like unless I'm completely fooling myself, which is always a possibility, I don't seem to be so stuck in kind of lowly based taivas like maybe I was at a certain point in my life. And so what is it really that I feel is missing? He says, nevertheless, when I look at myself, you know, from an external perspective, when I look at myself, I feel like uh, 
he doesn't exactly use this language, but he almost uses it. He's like, I feel like one of those wax statues in like uh, Madame Tussauds or whatever. And like the, you know, and like those, and like it looks totally alive, but it's, it's just plastic. It's, it's not, it's missing the breath of life. And then he says, and the only thing that I feel like I want to do is I just want to convert to Judaism. Now, he was born from a Jewish woman. He doesn't need to convert to Judaism. I just feel like I want to convert to Judaism. Like I'm doing all the things, but like I'm doing it without being through and through. That's tshuva stomach. We'll talk about that, that afterwards. That's a different type of feeling. Tonight, we're going to talk about tshuva protis. Now, it's very difficult reading what we're going to do tonight. Very difficult indeed. And so I'm going to try to find what I what seems to me as, um, as I was looking at this today in preparation for the year tonight, what seems to me maybe a thread that goes through the entire experience of tshuva pratis. Every person has their, you know, has their own, like Rabbi Yisrael Salanter himself said, that as opposed to medicine, where generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, there is, uh, everyone's body is more or less the same. And when this particular thing happens, that's the whole basis of medicine. A doctor studies X number of cases, and then he's basically seen it all in his field, more or less. And then he knows that, you know, either we have medicine for this, we don't have medicine for this, and these are the statistics of how well it works or it doesn't work. When it comes to, when it comes to the neshama, so the tshuva pratis, and you see that Rav Cook is not going to give us specific directions, but he's more describing the experience. Because the specific directions is a one-on-one type of thing with maybe your, your best friends in the world or your, your greatest teachers who know you the best in the world and, and maybe yourself, an honest reflection of what are the pratim, what are these things that are making me feel what Rav Kook is going to be describing here. And just as a one last word of introduction before we begin to read, is that I would say the one word which you don't see in the second half of this chapter where he talks about shuva klalis, stamis, this more kind of like mysterious washing over me of I want to feel something that's not there, even though there's nothing in particular. In this first large block of, of text that we're going to try to conquer tonight, the main thing that Rav Cook seems to be describing here that comes from a person who has not yet done tshuva pratis and the inverse of what it feels like to actually do this tshuva pratis is the difference between carrying around that whatever the chit is, it doesn't really matter. Whatever our personal reflection in the mirror comes up with and whatever it is that we're carrying around, it is the burden of carrying around these specific averos. For, for the tshuva klalis, and we'll read it in a second, it'll become more clear. For tshuva klalis, I don't feel the heaviness of carrying around something. I don't feel like I'm carrying this burden. I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like there's something that's not there. For tshuva pratis, it seems like what Rav Kook is saying is that I am not a free person. And he's going to use that exact question. I'm, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm being shackled somehow by this thing. I'm stuck inside of this, in this, you know, bear trap that is just grabbing me and is making me walk and feel and live with a sense of, of, of just heaviness. There's just a heaviness. So we'll read the words of Rav Kook. And along the way, I'd like to show you maybe two or three little jumping points where I think Rav Kook makes this super clear as a thread that's going through the entire, through the entire text. Yesh, yesh Shelot, before I, Yesh Shelot, yeah, okay. Yesh Tshuva Mechuvenet Neged Chet Miuchad Ochatayim Rabim. There's a Tshuva Mechuvenet, there is a specific, precise, directed type of Tshuva, which becomes necessary when a person recognizes a chet miyuchad, a specific avera. There is this same thing that I keep falling prey to over and over again. One of my teachers recently, Rabbi Judah Michelle, was on a podcast, and he mentioned the line that many people seem to have enjoyed, um, where he said, you know, every year, every year we t- seem to be adding, like, new mitzvos. You know, we have, like, these new things, like, uh, you know, there's this new... There's this new holiday that we never heard of before, like who, you know, who 10 years ago was celebrating, you know, you know, Tubishvat with like a whole big thing and like, you know, and, and even, and Lad Bomer and, and we're adding like all these, you know, and Yat Kislev is coming up and we have, okay, so people have been around, but every year it just becomes more and more popular and bigger and there's more, 
And, and, and aside from that, there's this mivtzah, and there's this thing, and there's, you know, we're adding all these different positive things to our life. He said, but, this, and this is the line that people got tickled by. He said, but we just keep doing the same averos over and over again. Those are not, those were not like adding, or like, it's the same averos over and over. Like, every person knows there's like those four or five things that just like, it's the same midah that gets me down. It's that same thing, like, and I just like, ah, you again, you know? So there's a chet miyuchad, or chatoim rabim, or sometimes it could be a bunch of things that I could locate. Va'adam sam chato'o nochach panav. Tshuva takes place when a person places this thing right in front of their face and recognizes it. And maybe even before that, maybe I'm not sure if this is still part of the symptom or this is part of the, you know, this is part of the fix. That it's just right in front of your face and you can't get around it. And so everything that you're trying to do is tinged with this, with this heaviness, with this kind of filter of this dark cloud that is just, I, I don't have the type of, uh, just last night I was at a wedding with some dear friends and, um, and, and somebody who was there, a Hebrew speaker, turned to me and said, he was looking around, it was at a wedding, you know, a wedding's like a pretty simcha dika thing and he's not a judgmental person. And he was looking around and he said, he said, he said, Anashim smechim Do you think people are like generally happy? Like, he's like, because he's like, he's like looking around and he's like, people are like trying to be misamech lechassan v'kal, but like, you could tell that there's like, so I said to him, I said, I said, you say, and I was being genuine with him. I said, I said like, I know what you're saying. Like, I know what you're saying. Like, you're, you're like a, you're a genuinely happy person. Like, I see that. And then I, I had the guts to ask him what he felt about me, you know, we were sitting there. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I think that's something that a person gets from their parents. That's what I said. I, feel like, I said, I feel like, I feel like I've met your, I've, I've met this person's parents. I feel like I've met your parents. I feel like, you know, there's something that you get from your parents on a certain level. But there's also this, there's also this, that people are walking around heavy and with like a filter of gloom sometimes in front of them. And, and, and me too sometimes, uh, maybe more often than, than, than we'd like. And it comes from a certain place of chet. Yaakov Avinu, last week's Parsha, right? It says, Vayisa Yaakov Raglav. Yaakov raised up his feet when he was going. And Rashi writes there that his heart raised him up and made his feet walk. You ever see people like that? There are people like that, where you just, they seem to like their heart is making their feet walk. And then there's people who are carrying just like a refrigerator on their back. And every step is like with tremendous effort. And like, you know, you see this sometimes in, I, I work in, in, in yeshiva. And sometimes you have a boy who's just like, he's just like, seems to be like floating along. He's like floating in a good way. Like he's, he's just like being carried by something. And then there's another boy who like, it's like, why, where were you this morning? It's like, I, you know, I got like, uh, I woke up and I had like a little ache in my, in like the, the third quadrant of my pinky. And it's like, and I, I just had to go back to sleep. And it's like, it's like, you know, like something is very heavy here so that I, I'll, I'll go one step further and then we'll, we'll read a little bit more. I had, a, sometimes it, it could come from, a, some, from something that's like emotional, you know, we're, we're in the house of, of a great psychologist. Sometimes it comes from something that, I had a boy who, he couldn't decide there was a certain tiul. We were going to Hebron one day. And he couldn't decide, he came over to me, he's in my share, he said, he said, Rabbi, I, I don't know if I can go to Hebron to on the tiul. I said, I said, why not? He said, I just can't decide like, if I should go or not. I was like, well, like, the standard practice is like you go, like without deciding, you know? And then he like, and then all of a sudden he just broke down crying. And I was like, oh, this is not about Hebron. I don't know what's going on here, but we're gonna find out in the next 20 minutes. And I was, like, you're not, I was like, you're not going to Hebron, come with me. And I was actually, the yeshiva was going on a tiul. I wasn't going on that tiul. We have a way of splitting up amongst the rabbim. And I was like getting into my car. So like, come sit in my car for a minute. It was the middle, of, it was like the, right in the morning. It was like 9 a.m. I was like, come sit in my car for a minute. Let's like talk. So we're sitting there and we spoke for 45 minutes. And he's like, I can't make any decisions about anything. Every decision that I make, like should I have this for breakfast or this for breakfast, is just so overwhelming. So I said to him, let's explore a little. We started talking and it turned out that he was struggling with the fact that, you know, he's ba I mean, basically what it came out in 45 minute conversation is that he's struggling with the fact that he's very dependent on his family, very dependent on his parents. His parents made every decision for him ever. And he's reaching this stage of adulthood where he now has to start making decisions for himself. And there's one or two huge decisions. I said, you know how a computer works? I said, you ever see like, where you get to that, like the, there's one program that's running and it gets like a little 
block. And then you press control alt delete and you open up the task manager and it says like CPU is like 83% is being used by this one program that's not even really working. So then you can't even use like Microsoft Paint to draw a circle, you know, because 83% of the computer is being blocked up by this. So I said, it's not that you're having trouble deciding about Hebron, you just, you have no more bandwidth. You're totally, your bandwidth is completely. And so this, you see people like this who are walking around with this heaviness that a tiny little thing in their pinky hurts, you know, that all of a sudden, like, I can't possibly do anything because of, and it's not this, this is just the straw that, you know, that broke the camel's back. This is, this is the, the one thing that's bringing you to this place of, I just possibly, I can't possibly do anything else. Uh, can you relate that again back to Chuba terms? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's in terms of pratis. So chuva pratis, he says, sometimes a person is walking around with a specific burden on their so shoulder. this kid had the pratis, or you just like, This person had an emotional thing. I don't think this was a, a, an Avera issue. Well, again, in Rav Cook's world, chait means something is off balance, right? Chait means, like the word is used in Tanakh, that uh, the archers in, mm-hmm. in Am Yisrael's army, they were able to hit like a, a hair's breadth, velo yechta, without missing. They could, mom, they get hit, you put a piece of hair like on a wall with a thumbtack and they're sitting there from, you know, 100 meters away and they could hit that hair without, without missing, without deviating to the slightest bit to, the, to either side. So this person was just struggling with over-reliance, which maybe at a certain point in life was healthy. It was time to kind of like bring it back in a certain way. And um, he, again, so in the classic terms, we don't normally think of this as a chait, but tshuva gufadness or tshuva, you know, this emotional thing that was weighing him down. So the answer was, uh, since nobody knows who this is, but the answer was that I, I set him up with, with a therapist to go. I, oh, and this also came out with this. And it's chashav to bring out this nakuda because it's so important. I, so we started talking and I said, are you, have you, you know, have you been sh- struggling ever in the past with anxiety? And he said, yeah, like throughout high school, I went to a therapist every, every week, once a week. He said, I, I, I take medication for, for ADD, and, but the therapist felt that when it comes to anxiety, that could be managed with talk therapy. I don't need to take medicine for that. I could have to take more medicine. I could manage it with talk therapy. I said, but you've been in yeshiva for three months now, and you haven't, what, what, did, what did you think was going to happen? Like, you know, it started to, and I didn't say it exactly like this. I said it more compassionately, but said, you, you stopped managing the, the, you know, the incoming mail, and now there's like, you know, no wonder you're at 83% in your CPU in this thing, because you had a very manageable system, and now, and so it was just a matter of, and now Baruch Hashem, he's in a much, much healthier space, another, you know, two, three weeks later, since we had this deal, he's in a much healthier space, and it's just because he, he did tshuva, he did tshuva because he recognized there was a need that he was supposed to be taking care of, this, and it didn't, and that huge boulder that was on his shoulder. What's interesting about this is that it's not mentioned of there's no mention of Hashem in this, meaning Teshuvah t- t- doesn't mean, like people often say Teshuvah is returning to Hashem. There's no mention of Hashem in this per se. This is about yourself, which I know Rav Cook speaks about when you, when you return, when you find yourself. He will talk about Hashem. Yeah, you, no, obviously, but... If Hashem, is, if Hashem is the ultimate barometer that we're calibrating ourselves towards... So then, again, there's different ways of talking about this. We could talk about this in psychological register, which is, I think, what we just did. We could speak about this Kabbalistically. You know, he's overly relying on, on, on the midah of chesed. You know, he's too much leaning on this chesed and he needs to experience a little bit of gvura and pullback. There's different ways you could speak about this. However you want to speak about it, you could speak about it. You know, what exactly is the nekuda? But... What it has to do is with calibrating back to a place where there is a certain uh, divine perfection. So it is ultimately, you know, it is directed towards Hashem. And especially if it's causing him to not be able to daven properly and not be able to learn properly and not be able to speak to people with, with a smile. And mm-hmm. those are all things that are taking him away from an experience, bin on l'chaver, bin on l'makom, bin on l'atzmo, that, that need to be recalibrated. Mm-hmm. So the person, the first step is, ha'adam sam chata'o nochach panav. Let's call out the monster. What is this thing? And again, this corresponds to all three categories. Whether it's tshuva gufonis, tshuva amunis, tshuva sichlis, whatever it is, let's call out what the problem is. And he begins to regret 
and to be pained over the fact that he is no, he's trapped in the pach hachit, in the, literally in the trap. That's, I can't get the imagery of like a bear claw just like snapping on this guy's, you know, on this guy's leg. He just can't move. And what starts to happen is his, his soul starts to, he feels himself trapped in the pach hachit. Here, maybe the better imagery for what Rav Kook is about to say is he fell into one of those, you know, they have like the ambushes with like the leaves and the, you know, and you're just like, you're like walking along and all of a sudden one day you're just like, and you fall into this pit. And then Rav Kook says, and then what do you start to do? V'nafsho, his soul, mitafeses ve'ola, it starts to climb up. You start to climb out of this pit. What beautiful Hashonos. Until he frees himself from the slavery of sin. From the avdus hachatos. From the slavery of sin. For of Cook, all chait, all sin, is not just missing the mark in terms of some external, you know, barometer that Hashem created, target, but it's missing the target that's very much inside of oneself. The experience that that immediately came to mind is what Rav Kook writes in Oros HaKodesh, in the third chilek of Oros HaKodesh, a very famous piece, where Rav Kook talks about all sin really being an experience of, there's a pasuk in Yechezkel that Rav Kook is kind of poetically riffing on. Pasuk says in Yechezkel, Va'ani b'soch ha'gola. Yechezkel has this nevuah, this illumination, this moment of recognition, of reckoning as he's sitting there, al Nar's Bavel, by the rivers of, of Bavel, and he says, Va'ani b'soch ha'gola. And I was sitting there in the exile. A very simple pasuk that doesn't seem to be. And Rav Kook says, Va'ani gola, this pasuk from Yechezkel, of course he doesn't quote that it's from Yechezkel, he just expects us to, to know where it's from. Va'ani gola, says Rav Kook, Ha'ani ha'pnimi ha'atzmi. Ani gola doesn't just mean I am geographically in Bavel. But sometimes a person wakes up and they realize, Ha'ani ha'pnimi ha'atzmi. I am not driving this, this car. I am being held down by chataim. It's not being revealed. I am an evid. I am a slave to, instead of self-actualizing, instead of being myself, instead of being what I want to be, instead, I am completely tied down by this, by this lack of freedom. I don't have the freedom to choose. And if a person is honest with themselves, because sometimes this is really the first step, they recognize, they say, can I not do this thing? Can I not make a snide comment, you know, in the workplace or in my job or with my kid, or not lose it or not, whatever the particular thing, or, or, or something super mundane. I mean, not mundane, but relatively that people don't think of as, you know, let's say, I don't know, I find myself twice a week, I'm being a serious person, I'm trying to be... And I find myself twice a week getting up and being like, did I bench or didn't I bench? Did I, did I bench or did, did I dive or didn't I dive? Right? So I find myself, so if I say to myself, can I go 40 days without having that happen? Is that possible? Is it possible for me to go 40 days without having the question of, did I bench? I don't remember. Did I say Asher Yatsar? I don't, can't remember. Or can I go 40 days waking up at exactly the time that I set before? If I can't, then I'm an edit. Now, I, I I could take a look in the mirror and I know for myself, whatever my nakuda is, it's not so easy. I'm going to 40 days without slipping up in that area. It means that there's something that's tugging at me. There's a, there's a master. Says, ah, come back. Y'all. You can go a few days. It's okay. You'll go a few days, you know, and then you find yourself just repeating the same, you know, new mitzvos, old averos, over and over and over again. And so there's an avdus. If Cook wrote a lot, I mean, Chazal wrote about this. Chorus ala luchos. Hashem carved, he etched in the luchos. Charus ala luchos. charus el cherus ala luchos. That there's something about the, the true eye, the truest experience of eye, batel ritzon chalifne ritzono, means not that you're being mevatel your will to Hashem's will because Hashem is a tyrant and he wants, he wants you to do what he wants. But what you really want, your truest self, the greatest freedom that you can do is by following the path of the Torah, it frees a person from their negios, and it frees a person from the things that are holding them down and enslaving them to the physical world, to their bad midos, to whatever it is. There's a support for that, for the foreskeb, by the way. For the what? A foreskeb should be, is legal. You can beat a get out of somebody. Mm-hmm. That, 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 the famous that, Ramam and Hilchas Yeah, yeah. Kofin Oso, Kofin Oso, Ad Sha'omer, 
that you could beat him up until he says, I want to, because he really wants to. He really does want to. There's a, chassam, there's a beautiful chassam sofer. There's a, chassam, there's a beautiful chassam sofer. The chassam sofer says that this happened, this Indian of Kofun Osad Shomorotsani happened by when we heard Anochi Hashem Lokecha directly from Hashem. It, it fundamentally changed. From that point on, that's why a person who says, I don't believe, is, it's, it could drive you know, the person who's saying they don't believe crazy, and I don't suggest that you, that you go and do this, but what we say to them is, no, you do believe, you do believe. You're just, you're just the word, even though it has a very pejorative connotation, you're, just, you're a kofair. What does it mean, kofair? It means, it means that you're, you, say, you say it like that, you say kofair, it sounds a little bit nicer. You're kofair, that's, that's like, you know, you're going to get a fist in your face. You say you're a kofair. What does it mean, kofair? It means like you, you're covering over something that's there, and you know it. You're covering over something that's there. And once we heard Anochi Hashem Lokecha, a Jew cannot escape that. That we have all these pathologies that, I remember you once told me about a friend of yours who was on the phone with you and they were trying to say to you, you know, I'm planning out what I'm going to eat on Yom Kippur, you know, at a, I remember you told me this one time, this friend, I'm planning out what I'm going to eat on Yom Kippur and he said that to you. That's a person who's in pain. That's a person who's like, you're planning out what you're eating on Yom Kippur. That means like, you're running. You're not. You're not, you're not besimcha about that. You could put on a thing about it, but, but there's a heaviness. There's something that's, that's, that's deeply troubling. And so, kofun osad she'omerotzani, we're doing you a favor. Be'emes. Umargish bekirbo eschirus hakedusha. When a person frees himself from that slavery, again, he uses the opposite. There's avzos and tshuva eschirus. It's freeing oneself. There was a second part to what he said as well, the guy. He said, I'm scared of entering the religious world. The Hainu. Yeah, right? exactly. So it's right. perfect. Like, it matches right. what you're saying. Right. Ha'ni'ima ma'od. I remember where we were when you told me that. Mm-hmm. So he, he feels inside of himself this holy freedom, which is very ni'ima, which is very pleasant. Ni'ima ma'od. Le'nafsho ha'nahala. For his weary soul. For his weary soul. He's walking around weary and gloomy. And all of a sudden... Just by calling it out, just by recognizing this particular thing, by calling out the monster, I love that Lashon. He's just, it starts to happen. He starts to proceed and to be healed. It's almost like he opened up the wound and it starts to, I don't want to use too, you know, be sensitive about the imagery, but it starts to just come out on its own. And that's part of the healing. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant, but that's how you get healed. V'zohari ora shel shemesh achesed, here, you know, Rav Kook is just, V'zohari ora, and the shining light of the shemesh achesed, of the son of kindness, chesed elion, the sublime chesed, the sublime kindness, grace, sholchim alav es kavehem, they send their, their kavim, their, their rays, really, I guess, a kav is a line, their lines, into his soul, and they start to heal him. In general, we know Chazal tell us, the Gemara Bava Basra, I think, is where this is located, that Avram Avinu had this gemstone that he wore around his neck and that anybody who saw it would be healed by it. Avram Avinu's gemstone was the ability to call out truth, honestly. He didn't go to his father and say, you know, you're tzaddik, what did he do? He came over and he said, this is very silly. And he broke the idols and he brought it to his attention. And if you look in the Rambam, in the beginning of Hilchas of Zarah, the Rambam was a, I mean, it was called Avram Ha'ivri, why is he called Avram Ha'ivri? Because he was on the, right, like Chazal say, he was on the other side of everybody else in the world. And he was like, look at this. It's ugly. I know you don't want to look at it, but look at this. This is horrible. And it did not make Avram into a popular fellow. Right? Avram was on the run. But Avram Avinu was, and so what was that gemstone that hung around his neck? So the Rashba, the Rashba writes, the gemstone that hung around Avram Avinu's neck was his voice box, was his throat. He told people what it was. Now, Avram Avinu was a man of chesed, right? He said, Hashem esha chesed, chesed elion. Because what does the Gemara say? That after Avram Avinu died, after Avram Avinu died, Hashem took this gemstone and he put it on the, he hung it on the sun. Very esoteric Gemara. That's what the Gemara says. He hung it on the sun. What does that mean? That I'm only realizing this right now as I'm speaking. It means that when a person is outside in the light, here we have nice lighting. We can't see, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to wear, you know, the highest quality makeup to hide your blemishes when you're in a, a room that has a soft kind of like white light. When you're, when you're outside in the sun, 
You know, and you see this, you see this sometimes if you're at like a, you're at an event, you have a person who's normally like totally filled with confidence and then they're like outside in the, in the sunlight and the sunlight is like exposing all the f- flaws, you know, of their, of their visage. And all of a sudden it's like a little more, they're a little shyer, they're a little more in the corner, they're a little more, not that they should be, not that they need to be or that they should be, but that's just the way it is. The sun has the ability to expose these little things that you wouldn't necessarily see nice. when you were... And so the, so the Shemesh HaElyon, this Shemesh ha, it's a chesed, on the other hand, also. It's a chesed. I think it's the, uh, or I'm not sure he says that when that, that voice box, again, he says it's his voice, but he said, I think he said in the terms of whoever heard him speak was instantly healed for other psychological ills. Oh, he brought it to their attention. Just hearing someone coming from a place of non, that non, as you mentioned, the non carrying the burden, nothing, to see someone totally light. I mean, most of, most of, you know, talk therapy is just getting the person to finally say it. You know, there's a lot of like round and round and round. And when they finally say it, when they have like that breakthrough and they finally say it, whoa, it's like, you know, that's the, that's, that's what it is. It's like, I just opened this wound and this, you know, I, my, my father amongst his many uh, loves he, he happens to I hope he'll be Michael Mifford. He, he happens to love Stephen King uh, novels. That's why he likes. You know, he loves Stephen King novels. He, he's a great one of the great writers. And there's a, one of his books. I forget what it's called. It was made into a movie. Also, is about this fellow who's in prison. The Green Mile. Who has like the stuff that comes out of his? You know, he has like when he. Uh, he's these yeah this the stuff that comes out of his uh, mouth, mm-hmm. like like bugs, or I don't really know what it is, something that comes out of him that's part of this, you know, that's part of the healing process, you know, that's, um, that's, that's really what it is, I mean, the reason that that hits home, that imagery is that, like, that's, that's mamish what it is. So if Kuk continues, and he says, Sorry, I skipped, I skipped, and then he goes, first he's misrap a little bit, and he starts to feel actually a little happy. Starts to feel happy about this. He feels a certain inner tainug uh, even. There's like a pleasure. He feels this simultaneous uh, pain, a little bit embarrassed. And as it's coming out, it was not, not pleasant. Shigam regesh ze atzmo, even the, the broken heartness, even this lev nishbar, gama regesh ze atzmo, even that feeling of broken heart is hanalo lefi matzavo. It a kind of, he kind of, it's a good pain. It's like a nice kind of pain, because it's like, you know, it's like I start to feel flesh again. Like there was something dead and gangrenous, then it starts to heal, and like, huh, there's like, I'm alive again. There's like something I start to feel, and even though it's a little bit painful, but like I'd rather feel that than feel. This nothing that I was feeling before. And then this starts to add to him a certain oneg ruchani, a spiritual kind of pleasure, pnimi, v'shlemus amitus. And he starts to feel a certain real shlemus, a real wholeness about himself. He feels more at peace with himself because he doesn't feel, and that's part of the heaviness, he doesn't feel that when he's putting on tefillin, you know, that's in direct contradiction to what he's doing three hours later. And he feels this pizor hanefesh, or like, you know, or, you know, at work, I'm like so pleasant with everybody. And then I come home and like, uh, or vice versa, I'm, I'm really good at home, but then I go to work and there's this guy and he drives me crazy and, and I feel, you know, we're very literary tonight. This like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation going on where like I'm, on the one hand, I'm, I'm like very pleasant and I'm very good and I'm, a, you know, like they say in, in Yiddish, uh, that's not, uh, what is it? Which means during the day, uh, an angel and at night, a priest. A priest, right? meaning like I'm these two. I'm like these two different people. 
And so now I start to feel shleimus amitas. I start to feel like a more wholesome, full, consistent, consistent, consistent self. He continues to walk. Again, there's a lot of halicha. He's holich. Holich umisrapa. Holich umisasher. Holich umismale. He gets healed. He's holich and then he's happy. He's holich umismale. He's holich and he goes miskariv. He gets closer to the Makora Chaim. And he's getting closer to the source of life, to his source of his life. Le'el chay asher zelo kfar haya kol kach rechok mimenu. To that God who he was so far away from, like the Ramam describes. Emesh, just yesterday, I was rachok umavuza. I was, I was far away from Hashem and I felt so distant. And just like that, I'm able to start to turn things around. And I'm going in the right direction. That's the main thing. The main thing is I'm going in the right direction. I mentioned once before, a mashal like this, a person who's on the, on the bus and they're trying to get to Tzvat and they're busy at the Tachan HaMerkazit, the, uh, you know, the world is very busy. So I'm trying to get to Tzvat. I'm trying to get to, to, to this place of holiness. And uh, at the Tachan HaMerkazit, I'm like not paying attention because there's all these distractions. And, uh, you know, there's a bakery, it smells good over there, and I'm like not paying attention. All of a sudden, I wander on to the wrong bus, and I'm headed in the opposite direction. I'm going to Beersheba instead of Tzvah. I'm going south instead of, instead of north. And I'm on the bus, and I'm like schmoozing it up with people. I'm talking, I'm enjoying myself, you know, I'm having a good time. And all of a sudden, I say to the person who's sitting there, I say, so what are you going to Tzvah for? I'm like, Tzvah? You know, you're, we're on our way to Beersheba, right? So... This is a very deep teaching. When the person gets off at the next stop, and now he's uh, somewhere down, you know, closer to, you know, he's, he's closer to, he's in, uh, I don't know where he is, but he's somewhere between Yerushalayim and, yeah, he's in Kirat Gat, okay, and he's on his way to, to Be'er Sheva, and he gets off at the bus there, and now he gets on a bus going back to the Tachan Amir Kazid. And now he knows he's going, to, now he's on his way to Tzfat. So, where was he closer to Tzvat? When he was by the Tachan Merkazid or when he's in Kiryat Gat on the bus in the right direction? Meaning when he's in the Tachan Merkazid, but he's going in the wrong direction. It doesn't matter that he's geographically closer to Tzvat, but he's, he's going in the wrong direction. But when he's going in the right direction and he's all the way down south, but he's going towards Tzvat, he's going to get there. She's going to get there. And so a person feels, yesterday I was so far from Hashem, today I feel close. Why do I feel close? Because I'm going in the right direction. Even if I'm still far away, but I start to feel close. He starts to feel closer. And then there's almost this, hopefully not too much, you know, it can get in the wrong way also, but his soul starts to feel, uh, his yearning soul, which is yearning for holiness now, it remembers with a joyful heart. He starts to remember the Poverty and the, and the lowliness, the destitution that was. And it's with a tinge of, I am so glad that I'm out of that place. He starts to feel this great sense of, of thanks to God for pulling him out of this uh, or to, for lifting this thing off his shoulders. And with great song, he starts to sing. Now he just quotes Psukim from Davin Melch straight. Baruch Hashem. My soul blesses God, praises God. Who forgives all of my sins, who heals all of my sicknesses, my spiritual sicknesses and my physical sicknesses. Who wraps me, who is ma'ater, who crowns me with chesed and rachim, with kindness and with mercy. End of David Malach, who satiates me with the good of, of, these, of these crowns and renews like an eagle, my, my youthful spirit. I could fly again. I'm, I'm soaring. I'm not being weighed down. Gravity has stopped having its hold on me. Hashem who does justice and he, 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 he takes care of all those who are ashuk, those who are being taken advantage of. Ashukim. So here, I'll pause again. The first thing I paused, this is the second of three, of three notes that I noted when I, when I was looking at this. The first thing that jumped off was this avdus and chayrus business, the heaviness of being a slave 
versus the chayrus of, like what it says by, in that first, what it says in the Svarim of, of Ishbitz Radzin, in the Beis Yaakov of, of Ishbitz. So he writes that, Hashem took us mitachas sivlos mitzrayim. He took us from the sivlos mitzrayim. Sivlos mitzrayim means that we were having more and more stacked on top of us. Sivlos means the burdens of mitzrayim, but it comes from the of savlanut. We were patient with it. We were carrying around this burden. And at a certain point, we said, what am I carrying this around for? What am I carrying your narishkite for? I'm putting this down. Right? Hashem took us mitachas sivlos mitzrayim. It means that we became impatient with carrying around this load. So that's first. Avdus and Khiris. The second thing is here... When, is that when they cry out? Is that... That's when they start to cry out. Because they start to feel pain. They start to feel something. Yeah. Like we're yeah. done. Right? The, 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 the Beis Yaakov writes in that same piece. He says that you think that... Uh, when we think of Mitzrayim, we think of like... Uh, especially those who have visited Yad Vashem. So we think of like, you know, guard towers and barking dogs and, and fences and stuff. He said it was wide open. You could leave it whenever you wanted. It was total propaganda the Jewish people felt. There's nothing better in the world than to build up this very strong, wonderful, you know, I won't draw inferences to, to, to people who are stuck in certain places and are, are, are helping certain systems and they feel like this is the best thing. I'm, I'm in the best place or the best country or I'm, in the best, I'm in doing the best thing in the world. And they're totally, no one needs to... You know, they're, they're, they're slaving away. There are people, Rahman Watsan, there are companies where you have men and women who are f- freezing their, their eggs and their possibility of having children on the company bill so that they can continue to work long hours. And they have, you know, they have like, uh, you know, little basketball courts in the thing and, and, and beer on tap and snacks. And these people are slaves. They're mamish slaves to the, to the companies where they just go invite their, invite their, invite their, invite their in their work. And all of a sudden they wake up one day and they're like, what am I doing? What am I doing? So that's avdus and chiras. A person all of a sudden recognizes that I'm living in this in this propaganda nightmare, and Hashem takes us mitachas sivlos mitzrayim. That's number one. Number two is this feeling of oshek. The word oshek brings to mind a a um, a teaching which Rav Kook a little bit points out, but it, it's more strong in this farm of of the chidush of the ger rebbe. By Yom Kippur. The last, um, the last thing that we say, mamish by ni'ila, one of the last things that we say in the machzer is we ask Hashem to forgive us for oshek yadenu. That lashon, oshek yadenu. It's a funny word. It means for the, um, the, mis, the misusage or the, the, the misappropriation of, of, of things that, we, that were essentially thieves. That's what the word means, oshek, means to, 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 to steal and misappropriate property. And so we ask Hashem for, forgive us for the oshek yadenu, for the, for the stolen property that we have in our hands. That's the climax of Yom Kippur, the oshek yadenu. So the Chidush explained that there's a principle in halacha <coughs> that if a person is borrowing a hammer and uh, the hammer is supposed to be used to knock nails into the wall, and the person decides instead that he's going to use the hammer to break up, you know, the cement uh, blocks in the back of his house so that he could re- lay down some tile or something like that. And that's not what this hammer is really for. So the very act of using the hammer for the wrong thing, even if nothing happens, is called oshek. That's called oshek. If I borrow something from somebody and they say, yeah, of course, you could use my car to to go pick up some groceries, and instead I take it on one of those two limb where it's like, you know, it's like, is this car going to make it up this hill? I'm not sure if it's going to make it up this hill. That's oshek. That's, mis- that's using it for the wrong thing. So this whole feeling of that Hashem is osa mishpat lekol ashukim, it means that Hashem saw that we were misusing, and that's, this is the teaching, ani chagola. Hashem says, you are in deep exile. Because I gave you, like, like when we read in the Tefillah Zaka, Hashem gave us eyes for this, and Hashem gave us a mouth for this, and ears for this, and a brain for this, and legs for this, and hands for this, and yet we use our eyes and our ears and our mouth and our hands and our legs for all the wrong things. That's the Tefillah Zaka. This, you know, and we look at 248 limbs, and we don't find a single one of them uh, that's, that's being used for the right reason. How heavy is that? To always be walking around with different masks and not using things for what they're supposed to When you use something for what it's supposed to be used for, it just it happens much more... Naturally, it goes. It's holich, like Rav Kook keeps saying. Hoi. 
That's the next word. Hoy. Hey, vav yud. Hoy. Kama ashuka haisa nefesh. How misappropriated was this soul? How misunderstood do I feel about myself? Ba'od masahachet, while I'm carrying the burden of the chet. Here's the last word. Because what a, what a wild word. Kadruso. Kadruso. Gasuso vesavlo hayom munach aleha. Kadruso, this, this, Kadruso comes from a lashon of, like a, a kadar means a potter, a potter, a pottery salesman is a, a kadar, that's an official, that's in, in biblical Hebrew, a kadar is a, but here it means like, um, like pottery, we have, you know, pottery that's like red and like very, that's like very, but pottery is mud, basically, it's like brown mud, you know, blackened, and so kadruso in, in Hebrew, and this is probably what Rukuk essentially means, it means like gloomy, it means like muddy, you know, he's walking around muddy. Gasuso, it feels coarse. Savlo ayom, he's sovel, savlanut, like we said before, he's sovel. Munach this is all piled on top of him. We'll be done in, in a few minutes. So the last teaching that I want to say is about this, this, this pottery that's on me. Such an unbelievable thing that popped off the page. I don't know, like, this, is, this is for sure drash, I don't, I don't think. Although if Cook was familiar with all these writings, he really was. There's a, a, a beautiful, beautiful teaching about the, um, about the spies, the second group of spies who enter into Eretz Yisrael. We have the 12 spies by, by, uh, by the Meraglim. And then we have the second group of spies who Yoshua sends. The second group of spies, the Pasuk says in Sefer Yoshua, that they went as Meraglei Cheres. Cheresh. That's the Lashon of the Pasuk. That's the actual Lashon. Meraglei Cheresh, which means Cheresh, like mute, like Cheresh, like secret. They went as undercover spies when they were checking out Eretz Yisrael. So Rashi there says, "Al from Chazal, Al Tikra Cheresh El Cheres." I made that that error. Al Tikra Cheresh. They weren't secret spies. They were pottery spies. What does it mean they were pottery spies? It means that that was their undercover. They were Cheresh. Their secret was they were pretending to be traveling salesmen. They were selling pottery. Who would like to buy our pots? We want to buy our pots. So based on this, based on this, there's a, a, an 